0: Hi there, how you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, I, my family, we were at Chick Fil A a few, a couple weeks ago. It was a Friday evening, um, and my kids were playing in the indoor, you know, the indoor playground or whatever they have there. The, my kids were probably playing in there for I don't know an hour, hour and a half, something like that. And uh, I was the, I was in there, uh, like sitting in there watching the kids, and um, I was the, there was only one other parent in there by the way. Uh, and the other parent was someone who attends church here. And so we're sitting in there and talking and watching our kids like a responsible parent does. And uh, anyway, uh, the, the thing is, f- the playground is like full of little kids. or A lot of kids that should have probably not been in there because they were a lot older. But anyway, um, but anyway, so I'm watching my kids. And one of the kids, um, like they're going down the slide and he just kicks my son right in the back. My son is three. He is probably like seven and looks like he eats sides of beef at every meal. And, uh, and so anyway, so my son starts to cry, I, you know, kind of console him. It's okay, buddy. You know, this will toughen you up. And uh, so anyway, he goes back to playing. And then another kid, another kid who's, you know, probably a big, big kid, you know, it's like, I'm not sure. Is he supposed to be in there or like got his learner's permit? Um, and uh, so anyway, so he's there and they're going to he kicks my son in the head. Uh, as they're driving. Anyway, that's around the moment where I snapped. It was not one of my finer moments, I'll tell you that right now. But I just, I stood up and I just started yelling at all the kids. And uh, I told the two kids that were there, and I'm like, you two, get out. The rest of you, get out. I just kicked everybody out, (laughs) except for my kids. And then we left. So it's like the whole place was empty. But I just, I just went berserk. And then the other guy, uh, Roger, who plays bass uh, sometimes, uh, he was there and I said, hey, bro, sorry, you had to see me go like all Old Testament on these kids. Uh, but, and anyway, um, so, and so I tell you that because, let uh, will tell you this other part, because the other night um, we, we sit down, uh, we, so we're, I'm putting Mia to bed. And you know, like, if you have little kids, you know that you put them to bed, and it's like usually when they're going to bed like half an hour late is when they ask like the deep questions of life. And so uh, I put me to bed, and she says, Poppy, can I ask you a question? And I said, Sure. She said, do you remember that night at Chick-fil-A? And I said, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and I said, yeah. She goes, you know, the night when you kicked all the kids out of the playground? Um, which is, by the way, I got to tell you that there's, Xander reenacts that moment. Um, and, and like, uh, he was there at the house. And one day he says, Oh, um, you kids, get out of here. And he goes, remember, you did that. And I'm like, yeah, I, re- I remember. He's, yeah, that's, that's what you did. Oh, you kids, get out of here. Bobby, remember when you did that? Yes, I remember when I did that. You don't have to remind me. It was not my finest moment. Anyway, so Mia says, <laughs> Mia says, do you remember when you kicked all the kids out of the playground? And I said, yes, I do remember that. And she says, um, do you remember that story in the Bible? Now, that, that to me is just a funny statement in and of itself, because the only stories of the Bible she knows are the ones I taught her. And so she said, like, you know, do you remember, do you know the story in the Bible? of uh, when Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them out? And I said, yeah. She goes, you know, that's kind of the same thing you did. And I said, yeah, I I guess it is. And she goes, no, no, seriously. Like, you and God were like the same when you did that. And I said, you know, Mia, you're absolutely right. (laughs) My question to you is, how do we convince your mom of that fact? Uh, And so... (laughs) Now, but I'll tell you, we do, we do that, right? We, we, we play God, we, at least we think that what I would do, what God would do, is the same thing. I do that on Halloween, um, just, just past. My kids collect all the candy, and then I say, guys, this is a great opportunity for me to teach you about tithing. And so, I'll be playing the role of God, and so I take the first portion, which includes all of the nerds, because I happen to really like nerds, um, and so... But uh, so they weren't, they were cool with that. Like, okay, you know, uh, what what got awkward was when I took the next 30% of what they had to teach them about taxes. Um, So (laughs) they weren't real. Hey, that's not fair. (laughs) Welcome to America. Uh, So anyway, but here's the thing. All of us, every single one of us has tried to play God at some point in our lives. We all do it. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands because 75% of you're going to raise your hand. The other 25% of you're going to lie. So uh, because all of us do it, we all have some to some level, a Messiah complex where we want to be Jesus for a day. Uh, And so we want here's what we want to do. And And we don't say it like this because it seems so unspiritual. But what we try to do is force people to do what we want, manipulate the situation and then claim it's God's will. Well, look what happened. It must be of the Lord. It's like, well, you know, you did tie the people up and force them to go. They all went, you know, and, you know what I mean? And uh, but we've all tried to do this. And, and here's the question. When we force a circumstance when we make something happen the way we think it should go, um, you know, and we try to play God. Do you know what that's called? And it's like, well, what is that called? There's a word for that in the Bible. Antichrist. What? Antichrist. Yeah, you see, we think the word antichrist means against Christ, but let me tell you that word anti in Greek. What it really means? It means in place of. Anybody who puts themselves in place of Christ, in place of God, is essentially operating in that role. Right? Have you ever seen um, like an Elvis like look alike? You ever been to one of those concerts or those guys that dress up like Elvis and play Elvis songs? Uh, like, I, I don't know how I got roped into one of these things, but it was like a festival thing. And I was there for whatever reason. And it was one of these guys, people were going crazy. And I'm like, you know, it's not the guy, his name is like Fred or something. It's on the side of his bus, you know, or the, his van. And, uh, but they, people are going, they think, uh, but it's, it's an impersonator. It's someone faking to be somebody else. And see, the reason I tell you all of this is because Paul in his second letter to the Thessalonians. In this series that we've been working through called How to Prepare for the End of the World, um, which we're ending next week, by the way, he's going to talk to us about the danger of impersonating God, the danger of putting ourselves in the place of God. And the way he does that is by describing to us the ultimate imposter, the ultimate person who tries to play God antichrist. And so we're going to delve into, in our time together, this mysterious character who's going to appear on the scene at some point in the future. But I want to do something else that I think is equally as important. I want to talk about the future. I want to talk about this person who's going to rise on the scene and claim to be God and all of that. But I also want to talk about how we try to play God in our own lives. When this person shows up on the scene, it will be to the detriment of the entire world. But when we try to play God, it's to the detriment of our lives. And many times we mess ourselves up, we mess our lives up, we mess our futures up, simply because we're trying to play God. So I want to start in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians in, in verse 1, and here's what we read. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you all, Of these things. If you pause there and give me your attention. There's three things I want to tell you. About playing God. And why we play God. But here's the first one. If you're taking note. That we play God by exalting ourselves. By exalting ourselves. To explain this man of sin. This antichrist is going to rise on the scene. I need to explain a Jewish holiday to you. Uh, The holiday of Hanukkah. That is happening in a couple of weeks. Uh, The word Hanukkah means dedication. And uh, in 167 B.C. little over 2,100 years ago. Uh, There was a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who came into Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem. He made the practicing of Judaism illegal in Israel. He confiscated all Jewish money. He forbid the teaching of Torah. And in his worst act, he defiled the temple of God by setting up an idol on the altar and sacrificing a pig in the temple. Now, you don't have to know a lot about Judaism but you at least would have to know that sacrificing a pig in a Jewish temple is not kosher, okay? You know that. So this this was, to them, the most obscene thing that a person could do, which is to sacrifice a pig on the altar. So the Jews renamed him. His name was Antiochus. That was his name. Epiphanes. That's what he called himself, which Epiphanes is a Greek word that means God made manifest. They, They changed it to Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And so... Um, In fact, here is a coin. He confiscated all Jewish money and started uh, with this coin. It was an image of himself. And then on the back, um, it said, Antiochus, image of God, bearer of victory. This is a guy who thought he was God and wanted to be worshipped. There was one group of, uh, one family, one group of men that wouldn't take it. They were the sons of a priest uh, whose name was Matiyahu, or as we would say in English, Matthew. And um, um, Matiyahu and his sons, his oldest son named Judas, um, or Judah, uh, he, they rebelled against Antiochus and, um, and defeated him. This came to be known as the Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, uh, they came and revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes, beat him back, and they, what they did was they cleansed the temple of all the idols that had been placed there, and so they were ready to, to dedicate the temple again to the Lord, but, and they were going to relight the menorah, which as you know is that candelabra with the, uh, you know, the, the eight... Um, or the, you know, the, the, the big candelabra that sat in the temple was about five, five six feet high. And, uh, but something was missing. They only had one day's worth of oil. And it actually takes a week to make the oil. And so they needed the eight days to, to make the oil. And they didn't know what they were going to do. So they put the oil in uh, for the one day. But then something amazing happened. God did the miraculous. And he allowed one day's worth of oil to last the eight days, until they could make new oil for them to be able to put in the menorah. And so what we celebrate, uh, or what Jews celebrate at Hanukkah, is this, it's called, that's why Hanukkah is called dedication. uh, Because it was the rededicating of the temple, and that God made this oil last uh, eight days when it should have only lasted one day. And that's why um, if you uh, maybe come from a Jewish background, or you have, uh, a friend or neighbor or someone that you know that celebrates Hanukkah, you know they put the the uh, menorah in the window, and so there's the one in the middle that's always lit. That's called the shimash, which means the servant. That's the one that lights all the others, and then there's the eight can the eight branches that every day one gets lit, and so that's how they um, that's how they they commemorate the fact that the oil lasted for this this period of time. Now the reason I tell you this is because in the day. It, it, uh, Hanukkah to this day is a huge festival um, in in Israel, this this festival of of dedication. But it was also a big deal in the time of Jesus. In fact, um, in John chapter 10, the Bible says that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And um, I'm going to read you the passage because this is really important to what we're going to be talking about. Here's what it says. It's in in the notes that we gave you. It says, then came the feast of dedication, Hanukkah, "uh, at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Here's the key verse. Verse 30. He says, I and my father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? And we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews. But for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. Listen. Hanukkah was the perfect time for Jesus to reveal who He was, that He was the Messiah, that He was the Son of God. Because it was a time where they would remember an impersonator, an imposter. Someone who was trying to be God, playing God in the place of God, but He wasn't really God. Antiochus. And every time they would remember that there was this guy who claimed to be God, but really wasn't. And that's, in this moment, is the perfect time for the real thing to show up. And so what Jesus is causing them to remember what happened in the past, he's showing that he's the Messiah in the present, but also now turning to show them what would happen in the future when Antichrist shows up and proclaims himself to be God. That's what we read in these verses in 2 Thessalonians. That during the time of tribulation, the Antichrist will do the very same thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did. What we read in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above everything that's called God or that's worship. He sits as God in the temple of God showing that he is God. But he's not. In fact, that's when the Jews are going to realize that he is not uh, their Messiah. And this, this issue, um, the book of Daniel uses this term and what he calls the abomination of desolation. That is this abomination that happens in the temple. and then, But Jesus actually takes that phrase and points it to the future. That it wasn't just talking about what Antiochus Epiphanes did. But that's actually a small version of what's going to happen on a grander scale in the end, in the end of days. That, that Jesus mentions this. And this is the moment. He says, when you see this. When you see the abomination of desolation. And you know what that is because you've read the book of Daniel. This is the time for Jews to flee. In fact, here's what he says. It's in, uh, in your notes in the Gospel of Matthew 24. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You see, this abomination of desolation, according to the book of Revelation, happens at the halfway point of the tribulation. You see, one of the things that people don't realize is that um, the first half of the tribulation, things are horrible in the world. There's all these plagues and sealed judgments and all this happening around the world. But things are actually pretty good in Israel, because the Antichrist has um, is causing there to be peace in Israel. This false peace. He's allowing the Jews to rebuild their temple. And after he rebuilds their temple, he's going to do the very same thing that Antiochus Epiphanes did. And he's essentially going to take off the mask and say and show that he isn't the Messiah, but he's actually just quite the opposite. And here's what I think is important for us to know, those of us living today, is that Israel is ripe for this deception. They're ripe for it. The reason is um, they they will believe... Anyone who brings peace. And this is one of the things that they, they believe. The, per, the Messiah is the one who will bring peace and the one who will, cause them, who will allow them to rebuild their temple. The very two things the Bible says the Antichrist is going to do before he takes off the mask and shows exactly who he is. Now here's why this is important, why this issue of peace is so important. Maybe you read the news or didn't read the news before you came here this morning. But today, Syria just fired some shots into uh, Israel. And and then I, I talked about this in the first service. I went um, back where I have a little spot to study, and I was checking my phone to see if there's an update, and here's the update. Israel fired back. And so and, and listen, this thing is escalating, and they've said this is just a warning shot. If you keep, if you keep firing into us, we are going to respond in like kind. So this thing continues to escalate, and what the, the people of Israel want. Is peace. That's why they're willing to trade land for peace because they're willing to say, "Hey, listen, we want peace, and we're willing to follow the one who brings us peace." When I was in Israel um, about ten years ago or so, um, I, I was at the Western Wall, what's called the Wailing Wall, and as I was there, everybody's kind of facing the Western Wall, and I just I turned around because there's all these homes that are kind of right on uh, right on the other side of the courtyard of the, where the Western Wall is, and there was a person. There was this giant. Um, banner that was, that was hanging. And so I asked our tour guide. It's all written in Hebrew, of course. And so I said, what does that say? And, uh, and he said, that uh, banner, it says, get ready, Messiah is coming. And so there's this idea. There's this, there's this messianic anticipation that, that the Messiah is coming in their lifetime. And um, what Antichrist will do is bring peace to the Middle East. But once again, it's a false peace. Halfway through, he'll break his treaty with Israel and he will commit this abomination of desolation and claim to be God. Now, here's the problem, my friends. The problem is this has been the issue from the beginning. You see, Antichrist will do this, but that's because his boss had the same problem. Right? Satan, Lucifer, um, he, he was not always this agent of evil. He was an angel of God. In fact, his name, Satan's name originally was Lucifer, which means this, bearer of light. And so, But he had a problem. His problem is, according to the Bible, that he wanted to be worshipped as God. He was playing God from the very beginning. And that's the very thing that got him kicked out of heaven and cast down to earth. Listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah 14. Remembering this scene, here's what it says. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And here's God's response. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the nations tremble? Who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? You see, think about that. All this is going down and right before... Satan and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire, which we're going to read about in a second. Right before that happens, here's what we're going to do. This is what what he says, that we're going to look on and say, is this the guy? Is this the guy that made the nations tremble? Is this the guy that was causing us all kinds of problems? I mean, this is the guy. I mean, we thought he was going to have like a pitchfork. We thought he was going to wear red spandex right? We thought he was going to have horns, right? But we thought, we thought he'd be bigger. This is the guy? He looks like Danny DeVito. I mean, come on, right? We're going we're gonna to think that. And, but that's not, listen, we think we have that idea of who, of who Satan is in our minds, but you know, that's not what, that's not what the Bible would say. The Bible would say this, that and, and, and you see it in your notes, that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He's an impersonator. He's an imposter. And that's what his henchman Antichrist does as well. He's trying to play God and it's not going to work out for him. Now let me give you a little spoiler alert as to what's going to happen at the end. You may want to know. Look at what it says here in Revelation 19. And I saw the beast, Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, Jesus, and against his army, that's us by the way. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence... And by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Stinks to be you in that moment, right? For them. But that's what happens. But look how it, it starts there, right? And it just begins to trickle down. It starts in the spiritual realm of trying to play God. Where this is this, uh, according um, to Charles Spurgeon, he said that, is the, that pride is the sin that turned angels to demons. And then look at what happens next. Look at verse 6. He says this. He says, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the, work, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And also, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to all the workings of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not love, receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they may be condemned who did not receive the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want to show you about playing God. How do we play God? We play God number two by seeking our will, by seeking our will. I mean, can I ask you this? You don't have to raise your hands or anything, but think about this. Have you ever gotten mad at God because God didn't do what you wanted? You thought you had a good beat on the situation and then it didn't work out the way that you hoped. And so because it didn't work out the way you hoped, you got mad because and we've all done this. And the reason that we do this is because we think, I mean, we wouldn't say this out loud, but we think we know better than God. I just think it would work out so much better if, if, we would, uh, if, if we would do it this way. But what we don't realize is that we're missing uh, the perspective that God has. Who sees past, present, and future. Who sees exactly the way things are going to work out. Um, now, here, when I was 18 and uh, starting college, my dad decided to, um, to buy me a car. And he told me to go check out some used Car uh, car lots, pick out the car, a couple cars, and then he would come the next day and um, and and come with me. We'd pick it out, and, and he'd buy it. And so I went to a couple places until I saw the one. I only picked one car out of all these uh, because I, I knew that this was the one that I wanted. Now I, you have to just—it was 1993, okay? I just need to say that at the onset, all right? But it was this purple low rider truck. If you remember back then, when they would like, it, those cars were like six inches off the ground. You couldn't even go over speed bumps. Now, here's why this, this car was so awesome. All right, I'm going to tell you why. Now, I'm, I'm burying my soul here, okay? Um, and I'm opening myself up to all kinds of scrutiny and jokes. But I tell you, I'm telling you the truth because I got to tell you the truth. All right? So here's what happens. I, I thought this was the coolest car ever because the bed of the truck, you couldn't fit anything because it was full of speakers. It was, and the, I turn, all I did, I didn't even test drive the car. I just turned on the radio and I'm like, I need to own this car. That's it. Because it was the loudest car I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and, and it was, I mean, you turn on the radio, people in the next county could hear the song you were playing. And I'm like, this is the car for me. And so anyway, so I, um, I, I, I it had over a hundred thousand miles on it and it was only like three years old, but who cares? Um, so all I could picture was myself like blasting this music, you know, like low riding through town, not going over any speed bumps because it would scrape the whole bottom. I just thought it'd be the coolest thing ever. And uh, so then I take my dad the next day and he's like, you pick out some cars. I'm like, I picked out the one. This is it. And, uh, and so I, he, he looks at it and he takes a good look at it and he said, all right, Robert, can I, um, d- did you notice that there's a giant crack in the windshield? You know, I didn't see that. Um, and he says, "Okay, um, did you notice? Did you notice all of these dents all over the car? Did you? Did you? You know, I, I didn't really get a good look at that. Did I show you the radio? Yes, I saw the radio. Thank you. Um, and uh, okay, now Robert, I need to ask you another question. Did um, have you tried to go in through the passenger door? And I said, no. He goes, that's because it doesn't open. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I missed that. I missed that. I missed that. And uh, now." Here's the weird thing. Like, I hadn't seen any of those things before. My dad shows up five minutes and he points out everything that's wrong with the car. Basically, it's like this car is going to explode in like the, ne- the next person who drives it. And uh, the point is this. If I had gotten my way because I thought I knew it, I would have I missed out on, the, on, 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 on what was God's best for me because of my own short-sightedness. And we do the same things many times because we think we're seeking our own will. We're seeking our own thing. Jesus would say it this way. He says, "Um, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not judge with my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, why is this important? This is important because in the verses that we read, he says in verse 6, and you know what is restraining, and it will be revealed in its own time. The mystery of lawlessness is at work, and that he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way then the lawless one will be revealed now th- why is this so important it's so important because right now right at this moment there is a restraining that's happening in the world there the culture that we live is seeking its own will it's seeking its own desire this is what we want this is everything that we that we want that we want to see happen and there is something that is restraining Keeping the world, keeping the culture from getting everything that it wants. Because once that thing is removed, according to these verses, that's when the man of sin will be revealed. Now, we live, listen, there is radical evil in the world in which we live. And here's the thing, it's not even fully unleashed. This is the restrained version of what it is that, is, uh, uh, th- that, that the culture actually wants. You know, and it's the battle between the filtered world, if you can believe it, that this is the filtered version, and the unfiltered version. We live in the filtered, censored version, and the world that we are, and the culture around us is upset because they want the unfiltered, uncensored version. A few years ago, I was on a flight from California to Miami. And, uh, you know, when it's a four or five hour flight, they'll show a movie or two. And uh, as I watched the movie, I thought the movie was really good. And, um, there was no cussing, there was no nudity or anything else that you would kind of not be into. And uh, I thought it was, it was a pretty clean movie. The movie was pretty funny. And so a fr- uh, I, I get to the office the next day, and a friend of mine says um, that we worked together at the time. And he said, hey, um, you know, hey," and I was telling him, I saw this movie, it was really good. And he said, oh, would it be a good movie to take my kids to? And I said, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and I said, man, no cussing, no nudity, nothing that we, you know, like no you know, gratuitous violence or anything. And he said, okay, great. And so um, he took, he, he went, his wife and his three kids that were 14, 12, and 9, I think. And, um, and he went to see this movie that ended up, that movie I told him, which ended up being full of nudity, full of profanity and violence and whatever. To say that he was mad at me, I think would be an understatement. He comes in the next day and he said, how could you have recommended that movie to me? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, that movie had violence and nudity. And it had, um, you know, all this inappropriate language that I took my three kids, two uh, teenage kids and and my one uh, nine-year-old daughter to see. And I'm like, dude, there was not one foul word in that movie. And he goes, let me ask you a question. Where did you see this movie? I said, I saw it on the flight on the way home. He said, okay, let me tell you something about in-flight films. They are all edited to take out all of the excessive violence, nudity, or cussing. And I said, hey, you learn something new every day, don't you? <laughs> and uh, that's so interesting. And, uh, and anyway, but I, I apologized to him profusely. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And he said, hey, it's fine. Just don't talk to my wife for a couple weeks, and you'll be all right. Um, this is, listen, this is the work of God right now. What we see, believe it or not, in our culture, in our world, is the filtered version. But there is coming a time where as God is holding back the tide of this satanic plot and the satanic ploys that are happening, eventually he's going to lift the restraint and then the man of sin will be revealed when God's work is complete, when the rapture comes. And so what Paul writes is that that the return of Jesus isn't going to happen until the restraining force is removed. And who is that? The restraining force is the work of God's Spirit through the church. I want you to think about this. Think about what the world would look like if there was no church, no Christianity. Um, yet, this, you'd say, man, this, this world would be totally out of control. But this is what the culture is hoping for. There are, there are people that are talking about a world without Christians. And uh, listen, once the rapture takes place and the church is removed, that's when people are going to see the world totally uncensored and unfiltered, which is what they want. And according to these verses, that's when Antichrist will be revealed. Because we live in a culture, listen, that here's what they're looking for. They're looking for, they hate Christianity, they hate Jesus, they hate churches, because they feel restrained by us. Guys like Bill Maher, who uh, has that show on HBO, which is one of the many reasons you shouldn't uh, subscribe to HBO. Um, but he, this is his, uh, one of the many quotes you could have of his. But he talks about how much he hates religion. I believe it's a neurological disorder. He just, he hates Christians, he hates church, he hates God, he hates faith, and he hates anybody who would believe that these are agents of good. Now let's forget the fact that Christianity, you know what we brought to the table? Besides the message of the gospel, we invented hospitals. We invented hospice care. We invented orphanages. And see, when you actually, when you believe in uh, a Darwinian view of humanity, that it's survival of the fittest, you don't care about people who are hurting. You don't care about people who have less. You don't care about people um, who, who are in distress, who are in pain, who don't have families, who are dying, people who are sick or ill. You don't care about that. Hey, forget them. You just didn't. You're not going to make it in the gene pool, buddy. Sorry. But see, Christians, we actually believe in the message of Jesus. We believe in what Jesus said, that when you were naked, you clothed me when I was hungry, you fed me. And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. This was that's a Jesus thing that we that we brought to the table. And here's the deal. But see, the culture doesn't see that they are looking for a world without Christianity. And eventually they're going to get it. They're going to get their wish that our culture has rejected Jesus and his teachings. And yet will. And here's the amazing part. They will embrace a counterfeit who will give them the unfiltered life that they seek. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter in John chapter five. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this is when the deception comes into place that we read about. Now look at what happens in verse 13. And here's where we bring it a little closer to our own lives. Look at what happens. He says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to tell you. We play God, here's what we do, by neglecting our foundation neglecting our foundation, neglecting the truths that we know. Listen, let me tell you how it works. And you know this to be the case. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know in this. This is why we try to play God. Because there was a moment in our lives when someone played God with us. You see, it could have been a parent or a boss or a teacher or a spouse or a friend, and they were trying to exercise some level of control over us, and maybe we allowed it or it happened or we fought it or whatever it is. But now we're in a position where we say we are never going to allow that to happen again. And so even though we understand the benefits of allowing God to give God control in our lives, we we have a hard time relinquishing control because deep down inside we think we know better. See, here's what the Proverbs teach us. It says this in Proverbs 28. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. You see, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And it's one of our traditions. Like he says, hold fast the traditions that you've learned. It's a reminder that we aren't God. It's a reminder that we need God. It's a reminder that while many men would try to be God, there's only one God who became a man. And died for us so that we could have forgiveness, life, and peace. You see that word, he says, hold fast to the traditions. It's simply a word that means teaching. It's the truths of the Bible that we believe, the foundations of our faith. And when we're grounded in faith, here's what we have. We have a proper view of who God is and a sober view of who we are. And when we get that confused, that's when it creates problems in our lives and for those around us. Now let me tell you how this works. And let me just, if I can, unpack this a little bit. There are moments when we try to play God and we try to not just play God in our own lives. We try to play God in the lives of our kids. We try to solve every problem that they have and and make everything kind of nice and neat for them. And I'm not talking about just when they're younger. We do this when they're older. But listen, there are moments. And I, I can only speak to my own experience as a parent. But there are moments when my kids are fighting. And they're just, they're arguing with each other. And one did something and the other did something. And then they start, they, I, I walk in and they said, and, and Mia will say, well, Xander did this. And Xander will say, well, Mia did this. And here's what they're, each of them is hoping. That one, I will side with, the, the, with one of them and then discipline the other one, preferably while that one is watching. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's what you get, you know. And, you know, that's, that, that's what they want. That's what they want. They want the judgment of God to come down on one and then to be there to witness it when it happens. Um, and there are some days that you just got to restore order, but there are others days that here's what I do. I'll walk in and I'll say, You guys are brother and sister, and you love each other. Here's the deal. Work it out. I'm gonna let I'm gonna give you an opportunity to work it out, or I'm gonna come back in and work it out for both of you. Goodbye. I'll leave. I'm kind of look on the clock. I'm going to give them five minutes to work it out. And you know what happens? This doesn't happen every time, but you know what happens a lot of times? I'm sorry, Xander. I'm sorry, Mia. Hug, whatever. And then they start playing nice together because they know that they have to work it out. Now, here's why I do this. Because I recognize I'm not going to be there to solve every interpersonal problem they experience in their lives. So they have a problem at school. And what's going to happen? Am I going to be there in class to help? Well, what happened to you say? What did you say? I'm not going to do that. They've got to learn to work it out. And they've got to learn to trust God. That it's not about me solving every problem. And listen, um, this is not just true when when they're young, but it's true when they get older. It's true for your kids when they're young and when they get older. You're not going to be there to solve every little problem that they have. And if you are, and if you you try to solve every problem and bail them out of everything, listen, you are not doing them a service. You're hurting them. They need to learn how to work it out. And they need to learn how to trust God. Because listen, we're not helping them if we just keep bailing them out of every problem that they have. And it's like, okay, oh yes, I'll I'll still cut your food. I know you're 30, but I'll still cut your food up for you. Yeah, we'll do that. You know, and, I, and you hear stuff, oh, I Nino, Ed, Nino. Ed Nino's 35 years old. He's still living at home. He's still playing video games. Listen, it's time to grow up. All right? Listen. And here's what we do when we allow that stuff to happen. Here's what we do. Listen. We're trying to play God in their lives. Oh, we're going to take care of everything. You don't need to trust God. Just trust me. I'll take care of it. I'll fix every problem. Don't worry about it. You don't need to get a job. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to buy your own car, take care of your own insurance, get your own life, figure out your own future. We'll just take care of it. Parents, can I tell you why we do this? We don't do, we think, we say this, oh, we do it because we love our kids. No. We do this because of the feeling it gives us. Because it gives us a feeling of power, control, and, and here's the big one, of a need. It gives us the feeling because we need to be needed. And that's why we do it. And guess what? What we're doing is we're doing our kids a disservice. You know how we play God in our own lives? It's an interesting thing that happens. We play God in our own lives when we try to keep something that God gave us. You see, you were praying for a job, and you got the job, and you called your friends, and you said, oh, praise the Lord. God answered my prayer. Oh, I'm so excited. You were hoping that God would bless you with a new home and you and your wife were praying and then it worked out and you called your friends and you say, oh, thank the Lord. He, he blessed us. He answered our prayer and, and we didn't know it would work out, but it did. You're hoping that God would bless you with more uh, financially and you got the raise, you got the job, whatever happened, you got the promotion and, and you wouldn't know that it would work out, but you called your friends and people say, oh, thank the Lord. He answered my prayer. You were trying to get into that relationship, and, and and you you know she was hoping that he would ask her out, and then he was hoping that she would say yes, and one of those configurations happened, and and she said yes, and he asked, and all of this, and then what happened? And and, and he was excited, she was excited that God answered my prayer, but then something happened. Here is what happened: your job that you God asked you to do something that you thought was unethical, and you started, and you said, well, but I mean. I mean, what choice do I have? I know God gave me this job, so I, I guess I must have to do that thing that's that's unethical. I mean, I know that I need to say no to it, but I mean, boy, it's a tough economy out there, and it would be tough to say no. And so we try to play God, and we say, "Well, I just I I, I know this one's not that big of a deal." You see, you got the home, but you realize now the only way you can afford the home is by not honoring God with your finances. And you say, oh, well, you know, I've I, you know, I, I figured it out. And I know God blesses with this. And, and you see, you started dating the guy or the girl. And it started to get a little more physical than you hoped. And you're not comfortable with it. But I mean, I mean, it's the relationship. And you don't want to say goodbye to the relationship. Because if you say goodbye to the relationship, you're, you're not sure if another one is going to come along like it. You see, the choices, and these are the choices. The choice is, do I walk away? Do I take a stand? Or do I play God so that I can try to keep what I think is the blessing of God? You see, the way that we answer these questions, the way that we respond to these moments will be the defining things of our lives. That we can spend our entire lives trying to play God and trying to make things happen, or we can just try to relinquish. and Just say, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to place the outcome in your hands. You see, what I've learned is that when I try to play God, it never works out. It never works out. You see, because I'm not God. I have limited perspective. I have limited understanding. I have limited insight. And here's what I know about you. When you try to play God, it doesn't work out either. Because you have limited perspective, limited understanding, and limited insight. And so the very best thing that we could do is to obey God and leave the consequences to Him. We can start trusting God's word more than our own interpretation of circumstances that come into our lives. We can start believing, listen this is so huge, we can start believing that God loves us and desires the very best for us more than we love ourselves and we desire the best for ourselves. Do you know that? That God actually loves you more and desires the best for you more than you even desire those things for yourself. My friends, that's why communion is so powerful. That's why communion is so important. Because it's a tactile reminder of our God who became a man and died for us. That when circumstances looked at their absolute worst, when our Savior was hanging on a cross, I'm sure many were thinking, many who loved him, who followed him, who walked with him said, man, if I were God, I would stop this. Little did they know that it was this act, this moment, this immeasurable act of love that was the moment that brought salvation and forgiveness to humanity. Because my friends, we are people of limited perspective, limited understanding, limited insight. And that's why the wisest thing that you can do is commit an uncertain future to our God who has unlimited perspective, unlimited understanding, and unlimited insight. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that even when we try to play God, you don't give up on us. You work with us. You work in us so you can work through us. And God, we pray. For those moments that we've tried to play, God, those moments that we thought we knew better. And Lord, we just ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace. And Lord, we realize that we're just dust. But God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you won't just let go. That's why you died for us. That's why your son rose again. Because you won't give up on us. You showed how much you love us. God, not while we were doing the right thing, but while we were running away from you, you died for us. You proved your love to us. Now, God, in this moment of communion, may we connect with you and experience your love, your peace, your grace, your wisdom.